Good morning. It's such a treat to be here this morning. As Sam said, we're continuing our series on life hacks. We're looking at Jesus's Sermon on the Mount where he gives an invitation and instruction into what it means to follow him and enter into his fullness of life. So would you turn with me to our passage today? It is Matthew chapter six, verses 25 to 34. These are the words of Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Look, I'm a worrier. I know that might come as a surprise. I'm pretty outgoing and playful and lighthearted, but I worry a lot. I'm perpetually preoccupied with tomorrow, with what could happen and what could go wrong. I even worry about how much I worry. And I spend most of my day in the mental equivalent of this, just, um, ooh, just um, uh, nope, um, I, don't, I don't know. Yesterday, for example, my brother, my older brother was competing in an Ironman in Malaysia because he's a psycho. And, um, <laughs> and I, my mum and I spent most of the day just tracking him on an app in perpetual worry that he'd collapsed in the humidity or been stung by a goldfish. Goldfish? <laughs> Jellyfish, <laughs> but you know, goldfish too. <laughs> At times I suffer from crippling self-awareness from the fear of being judged, misunderstood, disliked or disapproved of, especially by authority figures. I felt worried when writing this talk, worried it wouldn't be received well, worried that I might speak about worry in the wrong way. And right now, all I can think about is, do I have lipstick on my teeth? <laughs> Truthfully, it's quite difficult to not worry at the moment. When we look at our lives on a personal level, we worry about finances, cost of living, job security, career performance, relationships or lack of them, health and attachment to technology. On a collective level, we face crumbling social support networks, economic uncertainty, political instability, individualism, capitalism, terrorism, the escalating climate crisis and entrenched inequality. <laughs> Feel good? To be honest, I find it really difficult to choose trust over worry. 
And it's helpful to note that trust and worry are not binary. They're not the opposite of each other. It's very possible to be someone who has great trust, but also worries. And I think there's some unhelpful rhetoric around that really takes a reductive and a prescriptive approach to worry. You know, hypercheery quips and pseudo-wisdom on fridge magnets, or more recently, our Instagram feeds. And as a result, many of us feel a sense of shame because the impression is that being someone who worries means that you have a weak or a shallow faith. And this leads us to suppress and avoid our worries and fail to address the far more complex patterns of thought that lead to worry in the first place. And the truth is we all experience worry to some extent as part of normal life and often for good reason. Worry is an appropriate physiological response to danger. It's a protective response to potential threats. It helps us stay alive. However, having normal worry can often escalate into something more problematic, which leads to anxiety and other mental health problems. So what does Jesus have to say about how we manage our worry? Well, his tone here is direct, but it's not dismissive. He's speaking to a Jewish community living under an oppressive Roman Empire. They were vulnerable, marginalised, financially exploited. Understandably, they were concerned about having what they needed to survive. And Jesus doesn't offer them impotent or cliched advice. He offers them very insightful and powerful wisdom in response. And the first thing we learn from Jesus is to choose presence over preoccupation. Because Jesus distinguishes in verse 34 between two types of worry. He talks about the worry of today and the worry of tomorrow. And in their book, The Worry Book, by uh, Will Vanderhart and Rob Waller, they distinguish between two types of worry as well. They speak about solvable worry and floating worry showing how modern psychology only confirms the wisdom of Jesus. They write, solvable worry is typically about problems that are happening now and have a solution that is required now or at some point in the near future. It's the trouble of today that Jesus speaks of. So for example, you might worry about having enough money to pay your bills each month. So you take practical action to solve that problem. You create a budget which ensures that you spend your money wisely. You might wake up in the middle of the night and feel ill and be worried. So you take medication or you arrange to see a doctor. Basically, you do something and the worry subsides. But unsolvable and floating worries are those hypothetical what-ifs about tomorrow. Vanderhart and Waller continue that floating worry is often orientated around problems that are less urgent and might or might not happen at some point in the future. So for example, you fall ill in the middle of the night and you think, what if it's something more serious? What if I have bowel disease? What if I was bitten by a poisonous spider and this is the beginning of my death? Or you text a friend and they leave you unread, so you think, oh, well, I've obviously done something wrong. They must hate me now. Basically, you have a worst case scenario response to the particular worry and the issue lingers on, but there's absolutely no resolution to it. The only action that you take is worry. And it's this preoccupation with those imaginary what ifs 
that Jesus is challenging. He's challenging our worry about tomorrow. He's challenging our desire to control the uncontrollable. And how can this worry add a single hour to our lives? So what do we do when we experience this kind of worry? Well, Jesus shows us it's better to choose presence over preoccupation. It's better to choose to be present in the here and now, attentive and aware of the presence of God than to be preoccupied with what might happen in the future. We can choose to be present, to be here and now, to not allow our attention to be fixed anxiously on tomorrow and what might or might not happen, trying to eradicate all possible risk. But we can choose to focus and celebrate on the provision of God, our daily bread today. And in my own life, I found the best way to do this is through contemplative prayer. It's the prayerful discipline of holding yourself in the present moment, being watchful and attentive and aware of your thoughts. The Apostle Paul encourages this in Colossians 4 when he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. So it looks like this, rather than ignore or fight or try to control our worrying thoughts, we acknowledge them and observe them as if from an outsider's perspective without any kind of judgment or reaction. So we notice, oh, there's a worrying catastrophic thought. That's unhelpful. I'm going to let that float past. Because if we are to fix on that thought, if we're to engage that thought, that thought becomes stuck in our mind and we engage in this repetitive cycle of thinking about the worst case scenario. But if we acknowledge the thought, objectively, give it a nod hello and let it float on past, we actually take our brain out of survival mode and bring it into more of a mode where we're better able to A, be creative, but also to enable social connection. We basically help our worries lose their potency and disrupt the repetitive cycle. And it is a discipline, but as we practice being present, we're more likely to become aware of the Holy Spirit who indwells us in the here and the now, who's right there with us. We become aware of a God who's not absent or separate from us, but who offers us a perfect and present peace. We're reminded again of how the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings us into liberation, into restoration, and secures for us not only a future hope, but a hope for today. And it's this hope that is our anchor, firm and secure, as the writer of Hebrews says, even in the midst of our worry, we remember that we are not and we will never be alone. We choose presence, being present to presence, get it? Over preoccupation. Another thing we can learn from Jesus in managing our worry is to choose curiosity over control. When I was in secondary school, I had an arch nemesis. And because I was a teenage girl, she was also my friend. I believe the vernacular for this is frenemy. Let's call my frenemy Regina. Now, Regina became my frenemy when I started to notice, and others began to notice, 
that she was slightly better than me at the things that I considered myself to be quite excellent at. Things like writing and public speaking and my razor sharp wit and humour. And things escalated when Regina won the World Schools Debating Championships three years in a row. I know, you're just finding out that that's even a thing. And the high point of our melodrama occurred when Regina pipped me to the post, the school captain. Absolutely shocking. Don't worry though, I went on to be elected drama captain, or captain drama, as I like to refer to myself. And uh, we worked alongside each other for the full duration of our term in office. And every now and then, I like to see what Regina's up to. I like to surreptitiously stalk her on LinkedIn. Now, I know what you're thinking. LinkedIn is not conducive to a stalk because people can tell when you viewed their profile. Worry not. I have found a way to go unnoticed. It's the same methodology that I employed when assessing the suitability of potential Bumble dates. I call it going incognito before the mojito. <laughs> so one day, I'm stalking Regina on LinkedIn and I came across some rather startling news. See, prior to this moment, I was quite satisfied with my career. I've been to university, I've worked in a variety of sectors, I've diversified my skill set, I do a bit of writing and a little bit of speaking. I thought I was doing pretty okay and certainly on par with Regina. That was until I discovered that Regina has now only gone and given a TED talk which has garnered over two million views online. So of course, this sent me into a social media vortex and I spent the rest of the evening investigating her life from every Facebook, Instagram and Twitter angle, trying to find some sort of evidence that my life was better than hers. Sadly, it appears not. And I know that sounds a little silly, quite dramatic, a bit privileged, and I'm not really proud of my response. But what this revealed in me was a deeper, more complex fear, which I would assume is actually at the core of most of our contemporary anxiety. And that fear is this. What if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not as influential or as successful or as powerful as modern Western culture has told me I should be? It revealed this kind of exaggerated binary fatalism that says, well, if I'm not a success, then I must be a failure. It's interesting in this passage, in the sermon that Jesus gives, this particular passage of scripture sits immediately following Jesus' teaching on worry. Jesus, not worry, money, money. Jesus says things about money. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then following those verses, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry. And Jesus isn't challenging us to give up all concern for the things that we need to survive, nor is he saying that we should abdicate responsibility for our lives. What Jesus is doing is he's poking at the sensitive core of our tendency to look for our sense of certainty and security in materialism and human effort. 
He's exposing the misplaced security we find in wealth and success. He's not criticizing work or achievement. He's confronting our desperate, frenetic, clench-fisted desire for control and certainty and security and self-protection. I find my sense of certainty and security in my performance. It's why Regina annoys me so much. But I wonder where you find your sense of security and certainty. How do you self-protect? You might do it with money or possessions. You might even do it with the level of power or influence you have. And in and of of themselves, these things aren't bad. But when we hold a disproportionate value for them, when we worry that losing those things means losing ourselves, then we start to have a really distorted view of and relationship with God. We place more trust in our human effort to achieve and acquire than we do in God's character to protect and provide. Jesus says in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The kingdom of God, the way of Jesus, it's not self-seeking, it's not self-protecting. In fact, it's self-giving. It's not sustained by our desire for control and our obsession with earthly security. The very things that provoke and escalate our worry but it's characterized by a deep and steady trust in the benevolence, the kindness, the goodness, the provision of God who knows what we need even before we ask. I was chatting with some friends recently and my friend told me that he and his wife had made a series of decisions which would challenge their need for control in their lives. And they started to make daily choices to relinquish control. So they started to do things where they gave away more money than was comfortable, gave, were generous to the point where it cost them, or they decided to build relationships with people that really challenged their convenience and their comfort. You know, people who weren't like them, people who required a little bit of that extra effort socially, And each time they were just trying to give away a little bit of their need for self-protection, their need for control, their need for security, their need for certainty. And my friend said said that what was happening was as they were relinquishing control with these daily choices, they noticed that they were creating more opportunity in their lives to be curious about how God might show up for them to be curious about how God might show his goodness towards them as they started to relinquish a little bit more control. I love that. I think trust looks like that. I think trust looks like relinquishing our clenched fists little by little on a daily basis and opening up space to be curious about how God might show his benevolence, his kindness, his goodness, towards us. I think trust looks like saying, you know, I know that I'm deeply held and loved by Heavenly Father. And I know that I don't have to earn anything. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to perform. 
My greatest reward is that Christ's presence is with me. My securest identity is found in Him. So I'm gonna inspect my life and the world around me for evidence of the goodness of God. Like Jesus says, I'm gonna look at the birds, I'm gonna look at the grass, I'm gonna tell myself stories of how God provided for others in the past and I'm going to expect, I'm going to be watchful, I'm going to look for, I'm going to be curious about how God might show that same kindness, that same benevolence, that same goodness towards me in my life. That's what it means to choose trust over worry. It's to choose curiosity over control. What if we saw the words of Jesus in this passage not just as a command, but as an invitation? An invitation into a way of living and being that Jesus enjoyed, where he enjoyed fullness of relationship with God and total certainty, total security, total trust in that relationship as a father. What if we saw this as an invitation into that? It makes it much less confronting. As we learn to choose presence over preoccupation and curiosity over control, my prayer for us is that we would experience that same sense of fullness of life in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen.